In May of 2019, Chris Hughes, one of the co-founders of Facebook, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times entitled, It's Time to Break Up Facebook. In the article, Chris wrote that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, his friend, had become too large and too powerful. A monopoly that can buy, copy, or force out of the market any competitive social media, which leaves Facebook the dominant social media platform in the world. One of Facebook's creators is calling on the government to break up the social media giant. Chris Hughes helped Mark Zuckerberg found Facebook in their Harvard dorm room in 2004. Hughes left Facebook in 2007. In the New York Times opinion piece, Hughes writes he's angry that, in his view, Zuckerberg's focus on growth led him to sacrifice security and civility for clicks. He calls Zuckerberg's power unprecedented and un-American. The company has more than 6 billion monthly active users across all of its platforms, and that includes Facebook, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Instagram. Now, the issue for Chris Hughes isn't simply that Facebook is annoying or mildly invasive. Nor is it that we're tired of seeing which Kardashian you are. Says your Kim. But we all know that you're Chloe. The real issue is the monopolization of social power. And Chris Hughes names four big issues that he identifies come with that kind of monopolization. First, Hughes identifies the absence of alternative social media environments as a problem. Because the absence of competitors and the monopolization of that space by Facebook allows Facebook to do certain things with almost absolute impunity. And that leads to the second issue. The thing that Facebook gets to do with impunity, which is sell user data. Now, in some instances, data is sold to annoying marketing companies, which is a little violating, but arguably not devastating. But at the time of Hughes's article, we were all still talking about how 87 million Facebook users' data had been exposed to the political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica which used that data. That allowed Cambridge Analytica, a consulting firm once employed by the campaigns of Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, to access data to try to sway users' votes. That leads us to the third major issue with the monopolization of Facebook, which is the massive proliferation of misinformation, which we've seen influence American elections and elections all over the world. Now that's bad in and of itself, but it actually leads to the fourth major issue, which is what that misinformation can do. And for example, in 2019, we saw a genocide in Myanmar. And that genocide can be traced back directly to misinformation proliferated on Facebook. I doubt any of this is new to you. Since 2016, Facebook's reputation has taken serious hits. Facebook has come under fire recently for its role in last year's election. Reports have surfaced showing the social networking site was a breeding ground for misinformation. During the election season, Facebook was paid at least $100,000 by Russian troll farms for advertising. According to Bloomberg, representatives from Facebook will be meeting with the Senate panel on Russia's meddling in last year's election. Zuckerberg was dragged before Congress to testify about Russian interference. And one of the things that people noticed was how odd Zuckerberg was. And people started to joke that Zuckerberg was robotic, cold, calculating, not human. 
And that actually became kind of the major theme in the reporting about Facebook, which I totally understand. I think being a billionaire that young and for that much of your life will for sure change you and change how you perceive yourself and the world and everything in it, which I think was on full display in the way that Zuckerberg engaged with Congress. But here is where the Chris Hughes article becomes the most interesting to me, because Hughes wrote that Zuckerberg hasn't actually changed that much since college. He's a nice guy who means well. And here's my favorite quote from the article. Hughes said, quote, Mark demonstrated nothing nefarious, just the virtuous hustle of a talented entrepreneur, end quote. Right. You, you make a point saying of saying that Mark is a good, kind person, while, yes. and then you go on to slam the company, but yet you don't believe that there's something nefarious going on at Facebook, or do you? No, I don't. I, I, I say in the piece, that, and I feel that Mark is a good, kind person. We've been friends for 15, 16 years at this point. Do you and think I also think he has too much power. Mark isn't uniquely brilliant. Some mad scientist. That's a myth. A myth to hide the truth that Mark hustled, was lucky and privileged, and achieved the American dream. And that, well, I think that actually might be the biggest problem. The success of it all. The way we count. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, Three, two. Show me the money! What's your number? Sorry? Oh, we'd start you at 300 like everybody else. I mean, as a partner, I only pull in 600, and the bonus is... No, no, no. Your number. The amount of money you would need to just walk away from and live. See, I find that everybody has a number, and it's usually an exact number, so what is yours? The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology. Episode 1, Season 3. Now, in case you forgot or are new to the show, The People's Theology is a podcast exploring culture and theology like they matter. Because they do. In each episode, we explore a question, a theme, or a topic, and dialogue with it in our faith. And today, that question is, how do we count? Maybe that sounds weird, but we all have a way of counting, especially when it comes to success. I think most of us believe, at least in the United States, as Chris Hughes noted, that hustle is holy and that hard work should lead to more and higher. I mean, that's basically the underwriting narrative of the entire American story. Zuckerberg and Facebook, Apple, even Enron. And like with those examples, sometimes we love the result, sometimes we hate it, but for some reason we rarely ask, was that the right direction? Is the hustle virtuous? 
is 10 always greater than 1? So that's the question today. Should we count the way that we do? And is there a different way, a different option, a different equation or economic system, a different way to count? Now, I'm not an economist, but something feels wrong about how we value and measure success in our economy. Uber, WeWork, Tesla, they're all different companies that at different moments have captured our attention, blown up, and then been exposed as shell games. Totally empty promises. Now, WeWork is the most recent example. I mean, I just want, I don't want WeWork. I mean, I don't want we work at any price. I just think that that it's just it's too top of the world. ma. I mean, I just don't want it. Which went from a forty seven billion dollar evaluation at the beginning of 2019 to like a few months later, a four billion dollar evaluation. In that time, thousands of people, people I know actually lost their jobs while the former CEO, Adam Newman, received a $1.7 billion payout. And the same thing happened with Uber and Tesla, which are just additional examples of companies that have been valued way beyond their actual profitability. There are a lot of problems that we can diagnose, but I think one at the very bottom of everything is an accounting issue. Not just what we count, but how we count. This might seem like a strange connection, but stay with me for a second. I think the writers of the Bible are often wrestling with this same question. Most of the biblical narrative is written from the perspective of a people who are trying to navigate life in relationship to an empire. So in the Old Testament, that's the nation of Cana or Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece. Then in the New Testament, it's Rome. And for most of the narrative, Israel, who's kind of the primary characters that are running around in the story, are under the oppressive thumb of the empires. But even in the midst of that, occasionally Israel finds themselves with a bit of power. And in both scenarios, the question that they are forced to ask and to answer is how do we count? How do you count power and success and wealth? Do you measure it the same way that Babylon or Rome does? Or is there a different way to count? My favorite prophet slash performance artist, Ezekiel, when actually having a conversation about this question, compares Israel to Sodom of the famed Sodom and Gomorrah, saying in Ezekiel 16, verse 46 through 47, quote, your younger sister is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you actually became more corrupt in all your ways." End quote. Now, Ezekiel is not condemning Israel and Sodom for the sins that we most often think about, weird sex stuff. Instead, he says, quote, "'This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. 
She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor. End quote. Israel had become a culture defined by its pursuit of wealth, comfort, and ease. And it played out in their national practices. By the time of Ezekiel's exhortations, Israel had long forgotten God's debt forgiveness policies, they have neglected the Sabbath and the land, and they have established a conventional military built on military technology. And what happens? Oh, exile. They go into Babylon, which is where Ezekiel is speaking to them. The question for Israel was, how do you count? And every time they counted like the nations around them, a prophet shows up and tries to remind them that they were supposed to count differently. And that's not just true through the words of a prophet. I think that's true throughout the entire biblical narrative. If we rewind the clock and go all the way back to Genesis 3, to that moment with the snake and the woman and the fruit, again, we have an accounting question. The snake shows up and says, quote, you will know and be able to determine good and evil, end quote. Meaning, you will get to determine the rules of the economy, build the equation, and decide if more is better, which they do. In the following narratives, we read story after story of people running equations that determine that one person having more is worth another person having less. So Cain over Abel, Lamech in Genesis 5 taking women as slaves. And then in Genesis 6, you have the princes who enact prima nocta, which is the reason for the flood if no one told you. And then in Genesis 9, you have this weird moment with Noah's son where he sees his father's nakedness, which is normally read in commentaries as a allusion to some kind of sexual assault, taking what doesn't belong to you. And then finally, in Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel, people decide that higher is the only appropriate way to climb. Basically, what we're left with is a bunch of stories that show us how empty and destructive our math is. Just like when we see WeWork and Facebook and watch their profitability soar and then plummet as the books are opened, what we see is a story about the empty, destructive nature of our math. And that leads to another question, a more important question, which is if that kind of accounting is empty and destructive, well, what are the other options? How should we count? The author and therapist, Brene Brown, talks a lot about this concept of scarcity. We are in, I feel like, scarcity culture. Never enough. Never good enough, thin enough, rich enough, safe enough, certain enough. And she names three different ways that scarcity tends to affect us. She says it creates shame, can lead us to comparison, and if those things fail, comparison, then it can also lead us to disengagement, where we disengage from relationships, activities, goals, dreams. And the reason that happens, the reason it produces comparison or disengagement, is because scarcity engenders fear. And when afraid, we have ways of trying to mitigate our fear. 
to manage and control it. I think that when fear mixes with power, the result is an attempt to secure more power in order to mitigate fear. But the trick is, that often requires some kind of risk, which puts us in this weird catch-22, because risk requires power to mediate risk, but the more power, the higher the risk feels. When we come to the New Testament, Rome is the dominant power player in the world, and this is their strategy for ruling and controlling the world. They're a massive empire spread throughout the world, but to keep control of their massive empire, they need more. But the more they have, the more they risk, and so therefore the more they need to control, and on and on. You know the story. Now, into the midst of that story comes Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, who writes some of the letters in the New Testament, summarizes the movement of Jesus in what Michael Gorman, a biblical scholar, calls Paul's master narrative. Meaning that this moment that we're about to read from Paul is kind of the crux of his whole theological thinking. And it comes in Philippians chapter 2. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, quote, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, end quote. Now, scholar Joseph Hellerman calls this moment, this movement, cursus pudurum or a narrative of downward mobility that is intended to contradict the cursus honorum, or the normal story of Rome, where the elites go upwards in a race for honor, power, wealth, prestige, privilege. Hellerman and Gorman together, they highlight three moves of this cursus pedurum that challenges the cursus honorum of Rome. The first is that Jesus does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. And then second, he takes on humanity and the status of a slave. So he gives up godhood, which is what Caesars were always trying to achieve, and he takes on the form of a servant, which is the lowest rung in the Roman hierarchy. But then even more, Jesus becomes, quote, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And crosses were meant to be humiliating. So each of these moments is a gesture of Jesus lowering himself on the Roman ladder. Paul's master narrative, the big crux of his theological thinking about Jesus, is that Jesus denied the normal accounting of Rome to move downward where Rome counts upwards and forwards like Babylon before them, Jesus counts backwards. And here's maybe the biggest kicker of all. Paul says that Jesus does that because he is God, and that's how God is. Jesus doesn't accumulate more power, hoard it to mitigate risk. Instead, he gives it away. He doesn't hold prestige or privilege. He gives it up to serve. 
He doesn't even hold on to his life, but he sacrifices it. Jesus moves in the opposite direction of Rome. He doesn't accumulate power, but he also doesn't try to avoid or control risks. And that is true all throughout Jesus' life and ministry. One moment that illustrates that best is right at the beginning of his ministry when he enters the wilderness for 40 days. And while there, he is tempted. And one of the temptations is to bow to the tempter in order to build his kingdom. The tempter in the story offers to build Jesus' kingdom the Roman way the way kingdoms had always been built. Jesus could mitigate risk with power, secure the throne with domination. He could count as we have always counted. But Jesus refuses. Because the way Jesus counts matters to the world Jesus is building. Jesus could do it like Rome, but we've seen where that goes. So instead, Jesus looked at the values and measures and calculations of Rome, the havoc, the damage, the pain that they had caused, and says, your math is wrong. In my kingdom, we count differently. There's a reason that Paul is telling the church at Philippi all of this stuff about Jesus and his downward movement. And it's because Paul is trying to offer this little community, this little church that exists in a bigger empire. He's trying to offer them an alternative way of living. He tells them at the beginning of that passage to have the same mind that Jesus does. And then he goes into his master narrative. And that just means simply to have the same imagination, the same imagination for economics, for accounting, for math. Let's be all on the same page. Let's see the world similarly. And then he tells them the story of Jesus. Here's that mind. Here's the picture. Here's the narrative that stands in opposition to Rome, Babylon, Facebook, every other story of upward mobility. Paul says all of that to invite the community at Philippi into a different way of living, a different alternative kind of life in light of the empire around them. And as I read that now and tell that story, I wonder what it would look like for us if we took seriously Paul's invitation to have the same imagination. How could it shape the businesses we start or the way that we work, or the way that we parent, or the way that we love? How might it shape the way we think about leadership? Jesus seemed to believe that giving away power and influence and authority actually made more of it. What if we counted that way too? I don't know all the answers, but I think if we started to count the way that Jesus does, well, we might demonstrate to the world around us that we at least believe 
in a different economy. And maybe, just maybe, through our practice of counting backwards, the world might get a taste and an experience of that kingdom too. The People's Theology was brought to you by Missio Dei Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about us, about the church, about our community, about what we do, check out our website at missio, M-I-S-S-I-O, slc.com. And more than anything else right now, thank you for listening. If you listened to the show before, thank you for returning. If you're a new listener, thank you for listening to the show. And since we are coming back after quite a long break, well, as always, share the show. Share it with people who used to listen to it. Share it with people you think might enjoy listening to the show. Share it with people that this might spark a conversation with. Just share the show with somebody. Spread the news that we're back. And then, you know, if you're feeling very generous, would you go rate us on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts so that more people can engage in these conversations with us? But thank you for listening. Thanks for sharing the show. Check back this time next month for episode two of season three of The People's Theology. 